Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, called the Negro National Anthem for More Than a Century, was written in Jacksonville. Anytime you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you to keep moving. We'll discuss a collection of unique Florida tree snail shells. You just can't assemble something like this today, and that's why this collection lives within an archive. And we'll talk about Afrofuturism, the theme at this year's Zor Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the Jacksonville Children's Chorus with the Morehouse College Glee Club under the direction of Darren Daly performing the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. James Weldon Johnson wrote the lyrics to Lift Every Voice and Sing as a poem in 1900 to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Five years later, his brother, John Rosamond Johnson, set the poem to music. The song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, became so popular that in 1919, the NAACP named it the Negro National Anthem. James Weldon Johnson was born in Jacksonville in 1871, and John Rosamond Johnson followed two years later. Adonica Toller is museum administrator at the Ritz Theater Museum and describes the Jacksonville that the Johnson brothers lived in. Well, it was a combination of good and bad. Um, there was racial tension. However, moving to Jacksonville was like the thing to do after the Civil War. In fact, the Johnson brothers' father moved here in 1869, right after the Civil War, and he was a free black man from Virginia, moved here, met their mother, and they settled right here. And two years later, John James Oil and Johnson came along. So it was a combination of a place to come back to start over, um, and then there were still some racial tensions. In uh, his autobiography, Along This Way, James talks about how, uh, in some cases, there were black and white um, mixes in public places at concerts and the like, but it was like a, a respectful tension there. But um, over a period of time, it, the tension rose. Jim Crow laws and blue laws started coming in more and more till he actually left officially right after the fire in 1901. 
James Weldon Johnson began spending time in New York City with his brother John, who was having success writing Broadway shows with Bob Cole. John Rosamond was already gone because he, was, he had gone off to Boston Conservatory. Um, John was a child prodigy, so he already knew music was his thing. Um, so he was already gone, and in the summer, John um, was in, when he was in New York, he was writing songs with Bob Cole, their partner, and then James would come in the summer and write with them. So in the summer, he would spend in New York doing all these wonderful things and come back and be principal at, at Stanton. The Johnson brothers both attended the Stanton School in Jacksonville, where James Weldon Johnson would later serve as principal. Adonica Toller. So Stanton School was one of the Freedmen Bureau schools built right after the Civil War. Um, it was built for all children, but white parents did not want their children going to school with black children. So that made it an all-black school, um, along with Union Academy in Gainesville. So they all started around about the same time educating black children, which was really controversial because during slave times it was against the law for someone black to know how to read and write. So it was a little controversial about the school being there, but they moved forward. And even better for them, their mother actually was one of the teachers at the school. So we had some teachers from the North that helped uh, educate um, uh, Mary Steele, the brother of William Steele, who was part of the Underground Railroad, was here. So we had some really um, the prominent people who were coming here to help educate um, those who didn't know how to read and write here in, in Jacksonville. James Weldon Johnson was a writer during the Harlem Renaissance in New York, served as an ambassador for Theodore Roosevelt, became a leader in the NAACP, and was a civil rights activist as well as an educator. While he was principal of Stanton, he became a lawyer, and he actually was the first black to officially pass the Florida Bar. So there were black lawyers who were practicing, um, but most black lawyers at the time graduated from Howard University Law School. So since it's in the, in the United States Capitol, uh, it's a federal school, so a, law, a black lawyer could come and uh, practice wherever they settled. Um, but James was the first one to actually do the Florida um, Bar, and uh, it was some controversy around it, but he passed anyway. So he was a lawyer and an educator, and he had a daily newspaper, so he was always doing something. Toller says that the success of the Johnson brothers began with their supportive parents, who were good role models, serving the community and fostering in their sons a love of the arts. So James was always interested in writing and writing about social justice. Um, once he decided to leave here, um, because he actually was almost hung because they thought he was sitting in the park with a white woman, um, that really sparred him on to go ahead and live in New York with John and, and be more focus more on his musical career and further going on to school at Columbia. Um, and there he became politically active. He became an ambassador to Venezuela and other countries, and that's where he met his, um, during that time, that is where he met his wife, Grace. Um, so he was moving all along, and then whenever he was in town, he was working with John and Bob, writing musicals for Broadway stage. And so he was always involved with social justice and enjoying the arts. 
John Rosamond Johnson demonstrated musical talent at a young age that led to a successful career composing operettas, Broadway musicals, and vaudeville songs. He was actually selected to be part of the first black opera company in America. Um, and the other Jacksonville resident, I have to throw that in there, is Eartha White. She happened to be up there be going to school um, when she was younger. Uh, there was a, uh, during the summer, she would travel with her mother Clara on the ships, who was a steward on the ships. But when it was time for her to come back to school one year, there was a yellow fever epidemic, so she couldn't get back into Jacksonville. So she went back to New York and finished her education. And she and John were selected to be part of the Oriental America organization. And they traveled singing classical music all over the country. And John Rosamond ended up being the pianist taking over. They actually were trained by Harry T. Burley, um, the acclaimed um, songwriter and gospel singer. And so his career just continued to evolve as well, that he was popular around the world. When he actually put uh, the words to live dairy boys to sing to music, he was just coming back from one of his gigs in Europe. So he often was uh, the headliner in Paris, London, Germany. Um, he had a reputation, um, and he actually ran an opera house in London um, for uh, Oscar Hammerstein. The Ritz Theater Museum in Jacksonville displays documents, artifacts, and memorabilia associated with the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. For 20 years, automatronic robots have brought James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson to life, voiced by Ossie Davis and Harry Burney. Lift every voice and sing. I composed those words in 1900, pacing our front porch while Rosalind worked on his musical setting. We wrote the song to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday, to be sung by a chorus of five unknown school children. We did not imagine then that the children of Jacksonville would keep singing the song, teaching it to others, until it was being sung in schools and churches throughout the South and elsewhere. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Jim, your words are magnificent. I only hope my music does them justice. Rosamond, your six years at the New England Conservatory have paid off admirably. As did your years at Atlanta University. Yes, in many ways. They opened my eyes to a much larger world, including some of its injustices. What the beauty of that song, the beauty and the sadness of the song, it really is a timeline of what enslaved Africans and free blacks experienced here in America. So it was of acknowledging the pain and the suffering, but the still moving forward and then the hope of things being better. And so just of what was happening in the civil rights movement, that song really rings true. It rings true that there is this problem we're having or we're in this awful situation, but it's got to be better. We're going to keep moving. We're going to keep going. There's got to be another opportunity for a better life. And so it is about admitting that you're in a tight spot, but let's keep moving. It can be better. We, got, we can't stop. But if we move forward, we can, uh, there, it can be a better opportunity if we make it, if we just keep going. 
And so it was still true to what was happening in the civil rights movement. I think it's still true now to what is happening here in America and other countries where people's human rights are being uh, violated. And it's a timeless piece. And I think that even though he wrote it as a poem, it was nice. It just did more, it meant more, it means more. And anytime you're in a personal challenge in your life, it can encourage you. Florida artist Augusta Savage created a 16-foot-tall sculpture for the 1939 World's Fair in New York that was inspired by the song Lift Every Voice and Sing. The sculpture depicted a human harp made up of an African-American chorus. The sculpture was done in plaster because Savage could not afford bronze. After the World's Fair, the large artwork was destroyed. Some smaller souvenir versions of the work survive, and one is on display at the Ritz Theater Museum. Adonica Toller. It's unfortunate that she did not enjoy financially her gifts, but her determination and her grit and her desire to share her knowledge. Um, she influenced Jacob Lawrence and Romir Bearden, so other artists who did have an opportunity to enjoy their acclaim before they uh, left this earth. So she was ahead of her time and the Johnson brothers and Augusta Savage and Zora Neale Hurston all had lived here at one point and they were all in New York at the same time. And so when she was uh, given the opportunity to do a piece for the New York World's Fair, and I believe she was one of the first, if not the first black artist to have that opportunity, she chose to create a piece called Lift Every Voice and Sing. We affectionately call it the harp, but the song is definitely the inspiration behind the harp. The song Lift Every Voice and Sing became even more popular during the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s and continues to inspire people around the world. There were two ladies from the Netherlands, barely could speak English. I showed them this exhibit. I, in fact, I mentioned I'm going to show you Lift Every Voice and Sing, and they sung it to me in Dutch. And they sung it like they were, they were like this, and they just was so happy, and they sung the whole thing. So it's amazing how people are touched by this song, and I share with students, I said, you, I said, this is a song, just think how 120 years later now, people are still touched by this song. What are you going to do that is going to touch people almost 120 years later after you're gone. What song, poem, book are you going to write? Um, what are you going to do that people are going to remember you and just get inspired by what you did? Darren Daly conducts the Jacksonville Children's Chorus and the Morehouse College Glee Club in this performance of Lift Every Voice and Sing by James Weldon Johnson and John Rosamond Johnson. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. If you have not yet registered for the Florida Historical Society Caribbean Conference Cruise to be held May 16th through 23rd, 
Go to myfloridahistory.org now because time is almost up. Fascinating presentations about Florida history topics will take place on board the Carnival Breeze with exciting historic tours in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and other ports. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, there's always interesting items on the research tables here at the Library of Florida History, but earlier I noticed a collection of colorful shells on a table. Yeah, that's right, Ben. What you were looking at is a, a unique collection of 224 Florida tree snail shells. The scientific name is Ligulus fasciatus. And these tree snails are actually unique to not only Florida, but the very southern tip of Florida and the Florida Keys. And they do occur in, in northern Cuba as well. As the name implies, they live on trees. So they're air-breathing tree snails. And what's striking about these, and I think what really fascinates people, is the color variations in the shells. And it ranges from almost completely white to black and everywhere in between with these really beautiful stripes and and banded striations that are vertical, horizontal. The snails themselves, the shells rather, can be anywhere from two to three inches to about half that size. And they're very, very unique, like I said, not only geographically to Florida, but the variations in the colors correspond to hyper localities, meaning each striped variation can only be found within a very small region within that subsection of South Florida. So beginning in the late 19th century, people started noticing these tree snails and they actually collected the shells. And that's what we're looking at today is one of these historic collections. So somebody back in about the mid-20th century who lived in South Florida, they went around either picking up the shells off the ground uh, or were actually plucking them off the trees and taking the poor snails out of the shells. But we see a lot of these collections around that, that came from South Florida. And again, this Florida tree snail is very unique and it's a very Florida artifact. Now you also have in your collection some books that can help us identify these snail shells. Yeah, that's right. And this is where we kind of connect back to the archive side of things. So we have this collection of snails, which you would often see in a natural history collection, but they came in with collections of historic naturalist logs and reports on the collection of these snails and the scientific naming and and classification of the shells themselves and the, the regional distribution of the shells. So what we're looking at are books that were published by a man named Charles Torrey Simpson, C.T. Simpson. He was known as the Sage of South Florida. He actually first came to South South Florida from the Midwest in 1881. He was born a, a poor farmer in Illinois and really had a fascinating background. He started collecting shells and became fascinated with mollusks at a very young age when the plow would kick up these shells. He would collect them and send them to the Natural History Museums and began, even though he had a very rudimentary education, he became an authority in the field of conchology, which is a collection and study of shells, which is kind of unique. And really in the 19th century, there weren't that many people doing that. But then he later served as a young man in the Union Army. He actually fought with Sherman in the South and Georgia. Then he joined the Navy and traveled the world collecting more shells. He eventually worked for the Smithsonian and became an assistant researcher. And that's when he first came to Florida in 1881 in Southwest Florida and was just fascinated with the wild frontier of of the southern part of Florida and first started to notice the Florida tree snail and the fact that there was something really unique about these banded, you know, color variations and started recording it as early as 1881. And that's what we 
we see appearing in these books. We're looking at two books here in the Lower Florida Wilds and another book about Florida wildlife. But the front piece of In the Lower Florida Wilds, it's actually a color front piece, and it's a selection of some of the different types of color variations that you see in the Florida tree snail species. So really, really unique. And you can see that most of the book is actually dedicated to his exploits, kind of just traipsing around through the Florida Keys and actually throughout the Caribbean. The, the Smithsonian paid him to just travel around and start collecting these tree snails. And he's credited actually with probably introducing some Caribbean species to southern Florida. But we do know that the Florida tree snail occurred in Florida prior to, to Charles Torrey Simpson being here. And he actually settled in Lemon City, which is now part of northern Miami, and built a house, actually built it by hand. The man was a carpenter, too. Really interesting guy. And lived there until the 1930s. And he really became kind of the naturalist and a big proponent for conservation efforts in South Florida. He was known as kind of the John Muir of South Florida. So he fought to try and stop a lot of the large-scale rampant development that was happening in South Florida. As we know today, of course, that, that didn't really work out. So much of what he described is now gone, which is why books like this and the field notes and his original you know, mollusk collections, which many of are housed in the uh, Museum of Natural History in Gainesville, that's why these collections are so important for not only naturalists and, and biologists, but for historians as well, to kind of understand you know, how humans have impacted the landscape over the course of a century a century and a half. Now, this is a beautiful collection of snail shells, but could this collection be assembled today? No. The snails themselves, because of the rampant habitat loss and the introduction of other invasive species that prey upon the tree snails and the amount of collecting that was happening in the 20th century, they are a threatened species. So you can't go out, even if the snails have fallen on the ground, the shells rather, have fallen on the ground after a snail died, you really can't pick them up. So, And a lot of these snails live within the national park, uh, Everglades National Park, so they're within these protected areas anyway, so you can't take that stuff out. But they are listed as a threatened species. So, you know, a collection like this is unique not only for the the fact that we have 224 that are all grouped together by this hyper-regional specifications, but you just can't assemble something like this today. And that's why this collection lives within an archive or within a natural history collection at another museum, because it's, it's really all we have that's left. You know, so much of the landscape, unfortunately, is gone. Well, this is another unique part of the collection, Ben. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see the tree snail shells we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Afrofuturism was the theme of the recent Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this look at Afrofuturism. Each year since 1990, the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community has presented the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities also known as Zora Festival. Zora Festival is named in honor of the American author, anthropologist, and folklorist Zora Neale Hurston and takes place in Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, Florida and in downtown Orlando. In 2020, the theme of the festival was Afrofuturism. 
Afrofuturism is described as an artistic movement within the black community that includes elements of science fiction, art, technology, African traditions, and black identity. Due in part to the popularity of the 2018 film Black Panther, based on a 1960s Marvel comic book created by Stan Lee, Afrofuturism is currently having a moment. During the 2020 Zora Festival, I spoke to Dr. Kenitra Brooks. She's the Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. Dr. Brooks specializes in the study of black women, genre fiction, and popular culture. Dr. Brooks told me more about Afrofuturism. What I always push back against, because I think there are so many different elements of Afrofuturism, but I always push back against the idea that it's only about black people in the future. That what it really is, is a theory of time. It's a theory of time that talks about the past, the present, and the future all existing together, time being circular. And I consider myself an Afrofuturist because even though I work in a lot of the spiritual practices of the past, for me, it's about what do we decide to take from the past? What do we recover from the past? And what do we decide to take forward, right? Some things need to be left in the past and that's totally okay. But some things are quite valuable that we've lost. And if we can recover them, then let's do so and let's bring it forward with us as we move on. Dr. Kenitra Brooks ties Afrofuturism to the theory of time that combines past, present, and future. She also sees Afrofuturism as a recovery tool for African Americans who have lost so much of their history. Zora Neale Hurston's legacy of documenting the Black imagination and her ability to connect the past, present, and future helped shape the idea of Afrofuturism that we celebrate today. You know, the idea of Afrofuturism as a theory of time, and I truly believe with what she was studying, with her work in Conjure, with her travel and her work in Jamaica, in um, Haiti, you know, she understands this. She understands these, these theories of time in ways that you know, only now have a name of Afrofuturism, right? You know, these are very old ideas. We've just put a new term on them. Afrofuturism celebrates African heritage, history, and self-actualization. Zora Neale Hurston's hometown of Eatonville, Florida, embodies the spirit of Afrofuturism. Incorporated in 1887, Eatonville was one of the first self-governing all-black municipalities in the United States. It's no wonder that a town with such a progressive history would embrace Zora Festival's Afrofuturism theme. Always bridging past, present, and future, Zora Neale Hurston spent her life recovering the songs, stories, and traditions of black communities in Florida, the Bahamas, Jamaica, and Haiti in order to bring them forward to future generations. Dr. Kenitra Brooks. Her recovery work at that time teaches us how to go back and do recovery work, but also lays a foundation for us to, you know, a nice little jumping pad for us to go further into the past, um, for us to value folklore, for us to value everyday folk, for us to value everyone's contribution. We're behind the times, <laughs> you know, we're catching up with her, you know, and rightfully so. And, you know, continuously recognizing her genius and how ahead of the curve she was. This year, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities expressed the theme of Afrofuturism with a Black Panther masquerade party, a showing of a science fiction film from 1984 called Brother from Another Planet, along with presentations and scholarly conversations. In the spirit of Hurston's legacy, the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities has embarked on a five-year exploration of Afrofuturism. 
For more information, go to ZoraFestival.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org or listen as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.